Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon. Today, I'm going to read poems that depict how civilians respond to the First World War. The First World War extended from August 1914 to November 11, 1918. At the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, the First World War ended. Armistice Day. In the 1950s, President Eisenhower signed a bill changing the name of the national holiday to Veterans Day. Because, really, how could the 1918 armistice be celebrated after the Second World War, the Korean War, the launch of the Cold War? Now, November 11th commemorates all those who served in the military living and dead. November 11th in Canada is labeled Remembrance Day. One need not be cynical to wonder what is it that's remembered, especially when we realize the last soldier who fought in the First World War died some years ago. Do people reflect on the political motives for the war and whether those motives were just I don't think any of the four poems I'll read today muck about in such moral and political issues. Yet, there's much to contemplate in these four poems. Today, I won't be reading poems depicting battle scenes or accounts of misery in the trenches. Instead, all the poems on today's episode focus on civilians in the First World War, particularly women. How were they affected? In the 19-teens, British newspapers often published poems. The editors wanted these poems to appeal to a wide audience. Furthermore, in the first years of the war, newspaper editors promoted the war effort, tried to keep up the spirits of civilians in the face of massive loss of life and severe physical and emotional injuries suffered by fathers, sons, brothers, uncles, and other loved young men. Roles for women abruptly and dramatically changed. They took on civilian jobs abandoned by the men who enlisted. Consider Jesse Pope's poem, War Girls, first published in 1916, the second year of the fighting. Like a motivational speaker, Jesse Pope described the newly employed women in gung-ho terms. This is Jesse Pope's poem, War Girls. There's the girl who clips your ticket for the train and the girl who speeds the lift from floor to floor. There's the girl who does a milk round in the rain and the girl who calls for orders at your door. Strong, sensible, and fit, they're out to show their grit and tackle jobs with energy and knack. No longer caged and penned up, they're going to keep their end up till the khaki soldier boys come marching back. There's the motor girl who drives a heavy van There's the butcher girl who brings your joint of meat. 
There's the girl who cries, All fares, please, like a man, and the girl who whistles taxis up the street. Beneath each uniform beats a heart that's soft and warm, though of canny mother wit they show no lack. But a solemn statement this is, they've no time for love and kisses till the khaki soldier boys come marching back. That's Jesse Pope's poem, War Girls. It's difficult to read that poem without falling into a sing-song pattern. The poem appeared in Pope's volume, Simple Rhymes for Stirring Times. That title warns us. Her rhymes are simple, typically ending in a monosyllabic word, fit, grit, van, man. In terms of content, the poem lacks ambiguity. It also avoids challenging war supporters with any skepticism about the military effort. The women have moved into the workforce as ticket takers on trains, as elevator operators, heavy van drivers, butchers' assistants. As the poem asserts, no longer caged and penned up, they're going to keep their end up till the khaki soldier boys come marching back. At which time, Jesse Pope seems to anticipate, they will reassume their conventional roles as wives and mothers. But will they accept being caged and penned up all over again? As the war dragged on, soldier poets tried to shock their audiences with poems of graphic accounts of the misery the men endured and criticism of their military leaders for their callous indifference to the losses resulting from their inept strategies. Pro-war church leaders were criticized as well. In Siegfried Sassoon's poem, Glory of Women, even those civilian women who took over men's jobs, the very women Jesse Pope praised, are treated with scorn. I'll read Siegfried Sassoon's poem, a sonnet, and then I'll try to assess the vitriol it expresses. This is Siegfried Sassoon's Glory of Women. You love us when we're heroes, home on leave, or wounded in a mentionable place. You worship decorations. You believe that chivalry redeems the war's disgrace. You make us shells. You listen with delight by tales of dirt and danger fondly thrilled. You crown our distant ardors while we fight and mourn our laureled memories when we're killed. You can't believe that British troops retire when hell's last horror breaks them and they run, trampling the terrible corpses, blind with blood. Oh, German mother, dreaming by the fire, while you are knitting socks to send your son, his face 
is trodden deeper in the mud. That's Siegfried Sassoon's poem, Glory of Women. Sassoon's speaker recoils from the lustiness of women who get charged up by heroic virility. You love us when we're heroes home on leave. You listen with delight by tales of dirt and danger fondly thrilled. The poem implies soldiers fight to impress the women back home. But Sassoon does not blame the men for their romanticized adolescent motives. He blames only the women in this poem. They actually think that chivalry redeems the war's disgrace, as though the soldiers are knights on a sacred quest. Women can't believe the British troops retire when hell's last horror breaks them and they run. The verb retire is in quotes in the poem, as though the speaker has heard women use this polite term instead of saying the soldiers retreat or they flee in fear. The women are worse than naive. They are the cause of so much suffering, according to Sassoon. In anger, Sassoon tries to shock them. Not only do British soldiers at times run away from battle, but they do so while trampling the terrible corpses, blind with blood. Women are thrust into a lose-lose situation, it seems here. If they encourage the men, they are ignorant and heartless. But if they don't encourage and support them, they are heartless as well. I'm going to reread this sonnet. This is, again, Siegfried Sassoon's Glory of Women. You love us when we're heroes, home on leave, or wounded in a mentionable place. You worship decorations. You believe that chivalry redeems the war's disgrace. You make us shells. You listen with delight by tales of dirt in danger fondly thrilled. You crown our distant ardors while we fight and mourn our laureled memories when we're killed. You can't believe that British troops retire when hell's last horror breaks them and they run, trampling the terrible corpses blind with blood. Oh, German mother, dreaming by the fire, while you are knitting socks to send your son, his face is trodden deeper in the mud. Siegfried Sassoon's Glory of Women You make us shells, the poem asserts. And yes, the women have taken on new jobs in munitions factories, literally making shells. But they are also to blame for the emotionally damaged men who return home as shells of their former selves, the poem implies. Prior to the war, 
as Jesse Pope indicated, many middle-class women in England were caged and penned up, essentially required to play a passive role. Now that situation has been upended. The men in the trenches must adopt a passive role. Forced to take orders from their officers, immobilized by barbed wire in front of them, at risk of death with the long-range artillery exploding around them and the enemy guns facing them, these features of the new mechanized slaughter define the First World War. Many of the men responded to their powerlessness by displaying symptoms of hysteria. Previously, hysteria was attributed only to women. So when men experienced the symptoms, the diagnosis label was changed to shell shock. Sassoon's final three lines pose a new issue. They're indented to draw attention to what he's saying. He shifts from British women to German mothers. Oh, German mothers dreaming by the fire while you are knitting socks to send your son, his face is trodden deeper in the mud. He mocks both the German soldiers and their mothers, a form of global trash-talking. This may sound like a patriotic taunt, but the previous eleven lines of the poem did not promote the British war effort. Instead, they criticized British women. That makes these closing lines seem so peculiar. I accept that I can't always make sense of every line in every poem. Typically, I chalk it up to my own interpretive blindness. But at times, I wonder if the poet may have been confused and released the poem to the world hoping readers would be forgiving. Curiously, prior to writing this sonnet from 1917, Sassoon's own brother died at Gallipoli. Did Sassoon lack empathy for his own mother's sorrow? Was he unable to project any empathy onto German mothers? British women, of course, did not serve in the trenches, but many did go into war zones as nurses or volunteers. In the first year of the war, May Wedderbird Canaan received permission from her father to assist the war effort. For one month in 1915, the first full year of the war, she was stationed in the north of France, in Rouen, and worked as a kind of greeter for men who would have disembarked from troop ships that had crossed the English Channel and were about to board trains to take them closer to the actual combat. Her poem, Rouen, cast the spell with its repeated questions. Can you recall? Can you forget? Can I forget? 
nine of her thirteen quatrains begin with one of these questions. The second and fourth lines of each of these quatrains rhyme. The poem works up a steady rhythm. This is May Wedderberg Canaan's poem, Rouen. Early morning over Rouen, hopeful, high, courageous morning, and the laughter of adventure, and the steepness of the stair, and the dawn across the river, and the wind across the bridges, and the empty littered station, and the tired people there. Can you recall those mornings in the hurry of awakening and the long-forgotten wonder if we should miss the way and the unfamiliar faces and the coming of provisions and the freshness and the glory of the labor of the day? Hot noontide over Rouen and the sun upon the city, sun and dust unceasing and the glare of cloudless skies, and the voices of the Indians, and the endless stream of soldiers, and the clicking of the tatties, and the buzzing of the flies. Can you recall those noontides, and the reek of steam and coffee, heavy-laden noontides, with the evening's peace to win? and the little piles of woodbines, and the sticky soda bottles, and the crushes in the parlor, and the letters coming in. Quiet nighttime over Rouen, and the station full of soldiers, all the youth and pride of England from the ends of all the earth, and the rifles piled together, and the creaking of the sword belts, and the faces bent above them, and the gay, heart-breaking mirth. Can I forget the passage from the cool, white-bedded aid-post past the long, sun-blistered coaches of the khaki Red Cross train to the truck train full of wounded and the weariness and laughter and goodbye and thank you, sister, and the empty yards again. Can you recall the parcels that we made them for the railroad, crammed and bulging parcels held together by their string, and the voices of the sergeants who called the drafts together, and the agony and splendor when they stood to save the king? Can you forget the passing, the cheering and the waving, the little group of people at the doorway of the shed, the sudden awful silence when the last train swung to darkness, and the lonely desolation and the mocking stars o'erhead? Can you recall the midnights and the footsteps of night watchers, men who came from darkness and went back to dark again? and the shadows on the rail lines, and the all-inglorious labor, and the promise of the daylight firing blue the window pane. Can you recall the passing through the kitchen door to morning, morning very still and solemn, breaking slowly on the town, 
and the early coastways engines that had met the ships at daybreak, and the drafts just out from England, and the day shift coming down. Can you forget returning slowly, stumbling on the cobbles, and the white-decked Red Cross barges dropping seaward for the tide, and the search for English papers, and the blessed cool of water, and the peace of half-closed shutters that shut out the world outside? Can I forget the evenings, and the sunsets on the island, and the tall black ships at anchor far below our balcony, and the distant call of bugles, and the white wine in the glasses, and the long line of the street lamps stretching eastwards to the sea? When the world slips slow to darkness, when the office fire burns lower, my heart goes out to Rouen, Rouen all the world away. When other men remember, I remember our adventure and the trains that go from Rouen at the ending of the day. That's May Weddenberg Canaan's poem, Rouen. This speaker serves coffee and sandwiches and woodbine cigarettes to men temporarily full of heartbreaking mirth. These newly arrived men briefly appear in the last safe space many of them will ever know. The speaker must recognize she may very well be the last young British woman to speak to many of these men as so many of them will never return home. They pass through, they cheer and wave, and then the sudden awful silence when the last train swung to darkness and the lonely desolation and the mocking stars o'erhead. Nature is indifferent to the violence these men will engage in. The stars are mocking, nor does the poem offer any religious consolation. The final stanza refers to our adventure, which might well be how May Weddenberg Canaan viewed her one-month experience in Rouen. But considering that many of the men she's feeding and talking to soon will be led to the carnage of the trenches, our adventure sanitizes their horrific situation. I said earlier that First World War poems tend to avoid consideration of the motives for fighting, and that's true as well of Rouen. But there is a burst of sentimental patriotism when all chatter among the men stops when they're told to form into their group and they sing their national anthem, God Save the King. Can you recall the voices of the sergeants who called the drafts together and the agony and splendor when they stood to save the king? May Wedderburg Canaan, Jesse Pope, and Siegfried Sassoon are all British poets. 
Let's add an American voice to the British voices on this episode about civilians' response to the First World War, the voice of E.E. E. Cummings. Keen to join in the war effort and impatient that President Woodrow Wilson had kept the U.S. out of the war until 1917, E.E. E. Cummings served with an ambulance unit in France. And after Wilson committed U.S. troops to the war, Cummings was drafted into the military. E.E. E. Cummings' poem, My Sweet Old Etc., depicts a soldier, or maybe it's an ambulance driver, who reflects on how his civilian family members think of the war. This is E.E. E. Cummings' poem, My Sweet Old Etc. Aunt Lucy, during the recent war, could, and what is more, did tell you just what everybody was fighting for. My sister Isabel created hundreds and hundreds of socks, not to mention shirts, flea-proof ear warmers, etc., wristers, etc. My mother hoped that I would die, etc., bravely, of course. My father used to become hoarse, talking about how it was a privilege, and if only he could, meanwhile, myself, etc., lay quietly in the deep mud, etc., dreaming, etc., of your smile, eyes, knees, and of your etc., that's E.E. E. Cummings' poem, My Sweet Old Etc. Sassoon's glory of women expressed with much bitterness that women, allegedly, loved their men when they're wounded in a mentionable place. Cummings may be more amused than angry at such attitudes. Mother hoped that I would die, etc., bravely, of course. That use of etc., after die implies this mother does not want to visualize the manner of death. The speaker might think his aunt is naive. She's eager to tell you just what everybody was fighting for. His sister contributes to the war effort by knitting anything from socks to wristers, that is, coverings worn with gloves and mittens. And his father considers it a privilege for his son to serve in the war. This father talks himself hoarse, thinking his son vicariously performs actions he would like to do. And the speaker, the son himself, he's lying in deep mud and imagining his lover's anatomy, your smile, eyes, knees, and your etc. In addition to the title, the term etc. is used eight times in this short poem. The only time the first E in etc. is uppercase is this last use, his lovers, etc. He knows the censors won't let him say what he's dreaming about. We will just silently guess. Each fall, I intend to devote one episode of Poems for Company to poetry of the First World War. There's an abundance of richness in this poetry 
that emerged roughly 100 years ago in response to that cataclysmic event. You may listen to any episode of Poems for Company when it seems most convenient. Simply go to kmun.org, click on the podcast tab, and click again on the show's title. There you will find all the episodes read so far, as well as a credit line for each poem read on air. Our theme music is Philip Alberg's Going to the Sun from a CD live from Montana, available at sweetgrassmusic.com. Thank you for listening to Poems for Company.